Good morning, friends. It's good to see you all. We are continuing our study in the book of Revelation. Uh, If you have a Bible, I encourage you to open to Revelation chapter 4. If you don't, there should be one in one of the chairs in front of you. We think that the Bible is extremely important. It is God's Word. It is without error, and it is our authority. So let's turn there together. I encourage you, as I preach, to keep your eyes on the text. Keep looking at the text. Keep processing it as I preach. Uh, God's Word is the power. His Holy Spirit uses it in our hearts. So let's, let's read Revelation chapter 4. Verses 1 through 11 together. This is Revelation 4 1. After this, I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven. And the first voice which I heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, Come up here, and I will show you what must take place after this. At once I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne stood in heaven with one seated on the throne. And he who sat there had the appearance of jasper and carnelian. And around the throne was a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald. Around the throne were 24 thrones, and seated on the thrones were 24 elders clothed in white garments with golden crowns on their heads. From the throne came flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder, and before the throne were burning seven torches of fire, which are the seven spirits of God. And before the throne, there was, as it were, a sea of glass like crystal. And around the throne, on each side of the throne, are four living creatures full of eyes in front and behind. The first living creature like a lion, the second living creature like an ox, the third living creature with the face of a man, the fourth living creature like an eagle in flight, and the four living creatures, each of them with six wings, are full of eyes all around and within, and day and night they never cease to say, holy, holy Holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. And whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to Him who is seated on the throne, who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before Him who is seated on the throne and worship Him who lives forever and ever. They cast their crowns before the throne, saying, Worthy are you, O Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. That is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come before you and just in awe of you, sing about your glory, your greatness, your beauty. Uh, We sing about what we can't see right now. It's very different than what we see in our everyday life, your glory, your beauty, your sovereignty, your power. 
continual worship in heaven. We see cold and dark and seemingly things in our world that are look what looks like out of control, spiraling downward in many ways. God, we know that you are on the throne. We know that you are seated in the heavens. The earthly kings may take counsel together against you, Lord, but you are on your throne and you are ruling. Lord, we, we pray that you'd help us to trust you in your rule. Help us to trust you as uh, elections take place, as different people take power, as wars and rumors of wars happen around us, as, our, uh, as we see different things in the climate, hurricanes, famines. Lord, we pray that, we would, that you would help us to remember that you are on your throne, that you are God, that you are in control. Calm our hearts, Lord, with that. We also thank you and give you praise for uh, the many men and women um, who have served our country and the armed forces and those who have supported them from home. We thank you for all they do now currently and all they have done for us, uh, fighting, giving their lives, giving their time, giving their, the best of their years um, to serve to ensure that this nation has freedom to worship. And we thank you, God, that we can freely come uh, without fear and worship you. We thank you for what they are doing to, to continue to fight for that. So we thank you, Father. We pray now that as you turn our hearts to your word, that, we would, that you would give us a greater view of who you are. You capture our hearts and minds with you, and that this would change us, change us in everyday life. We pray all this in Jesus' name, amen. Well, our passage today gives us a window into heaven. You know, many of us are fascinated with what happens to our soul, our spirit or our soul, what happens after death, and specifically regarding heaven. What's it going to be like? What's it look like? And as this week, as I was preparing the message, uh, I was looking at my news feed on my phone, and an inter interesting article popped up from the Neuroscience News. I don't know anything about them, but it was from the Neuroscience News. It seems like they had some good, good stuff to say. I don't know. Scientific. But this is what they said. A recent study says one in five people who receive CPR, so like they're dying and they're receiving CPR, report lucid experiences of death while they're seemingly unconscious and on the brink of death. The lucid experiences appear to be different from hallucination, dreams, illusions or delusions, like bright lights, all kinds of stuff happening. It's fascinating. You've probably heard of someone claiming, either on the news or in books or movies, that they have experienced heaven. Maybe it was while they were in surgery, something happened and they experienced a near-death experience. Naturally, these stories fascinate us. We don't know. We can't see it. And so we're wondering, what, what does heaven look like? Maybe they saw it. So books and movies claiming to be true stories about heaven often sell like hotcakes. One book, for example, uh, 90 Minutes in Heaven, was a book and a movie about a man who claimed to have died in a car accident, spent 90 minutes in heaven, and then came back to life. 
This book sold over 6 million copies and was on the New York's bestseller list for more than five years. Another book like this is the right now New York number one bestseller times bestseller book called Heaven is for Real. In this book, a little boy claims that he went to heaven and came back, and then he shares his experiences of heaven. The book and the movie, the book has sold over 11 million copies, and the movie made $100 million. <laughs> so this is, we, we're interested, our culture's interested in what's going on in heaven. Pastorally, though, with, with these stories and the, the movies and the books, I strongly caution you from basing what you believe on heaven or hell on anyone's stories or experiences. The Bible, on the other hand, is perfect. It's perfect. It's without error in all that it teaches, <laughs> unlike the personal experiences during a car accident or of an unconscious four-year-old. But the popularity of these stories, however, they show us that we are all, most of us at least, are somewhat curious about heaven. So what does the Bible tell us about heaven? And second, if we could, if we could tear back the veil and we could see into heaven, how would that affect us now, here on earth? And these are questions as I was pondering this text that, are, that come out of the text. Revelation 4, as we just heard it. It pulls back the curtain. It allows us to see the throne room of the all-powerful, eternal creator and ruler of the universe. And like John's first reader, this vision of the Lord Almighty on his throne, it helps us. It helps us, as I've pondered, at least three ways. The first way, and this will be kind of the outline for the text if you want to take notes, First off, it helps orient our hearts and minds to heaven. It helps us to keep our eyes fixed on heaven. Number two, it shows us that God is in control of the world, not Caesar for the early church, not the president, not your boss, not the Senate, not the House, not Putin, not any human power is in control, but God is in control. He is on the throne. And number three, it gives us an awe-inspiring picture of the God to whom all allegiance and worship is due. So these are three things that I think this text, as I had pondered it, can help us in. And as we read this and as we think about it, it's, it's good to remember that the things that John sees are symbolic, okay? As we read Revelation, we have to put our, our thinking caps, our imagination on stationed on our heads, they're meant to paint a vivid picture in our minds of a spiritual reality. They're true, they're real, but it's spiritual. It's really happening. But John's describing what he's seeing as spiritual reality in human words. He's describing the indescribable majesty of God. So let's first here look at John's trip to heaven as it reorients our hearts and our minds on heaven. Verse 1, he says this, John says, after this, after the chapters 2 and 3, seven churches, he said, after this, I, and be, I looked and behold a door standing open in heaven. 
And the first voice, which I had heard speaking to me like a trumpet, back in verse 1, said to me, come up here and I will show you what must take place after this. Can you imagine what this would be like for John? He's an old man. Uh, he is probably, possibly somewhere in his 80s. He's, an, he's exiled as a prisoner on an island. So he's probably suffering, probably not experiencing a lot of the comforts that we experience. And he has just seen a vision of Jesus among his seven churches on earth. And now John is taken up and given a vision of heaven. And as he looks, he sees an open door. And he hears the trumpet voice of Christ call to him, come up here. It's just amazing, this imagery that, that we see. Imagine what John is going through. And not only did Jesus allow John to see into heaven, like he's like, oh, look at that. But Jesus brought John spiritually up to heaven. And he promised, the promise here is, I'm going to show you what must take place after this. So this vision here we see has a purpose. God has a purpose in this vision. And through these visions that God will be giving to John, God is going to show us the divine plan for the end of the story. And starting here in chapter 4 and moving through to the end of Revelation, God is unveiling, unveiling of His glorious plan to bring future justice and complete renewal to all things. So these visions are kind of a unfolding. We're seeing what God is going to do. And He wants to show John and First Church and us this. And catch this. It's not what might happen or could happen or possibly, you know, if everything works out right. No, this is what must happen. Must happen. God is fully aware of the future. He is he's fully aware of the future. He knows everything. And He is in complete control of the present and the future. He is in control of this cosmic plan of the universe. He has this meticulous sovereignty over all things. He is in complete control over everything that happens in your life. So maybe as I was thinking about this um, and reorienting our hearts to heaven, when I was in high school, my friend Adam and I went on a hike in the mountains, the Bighorn Mountains. Our goal was to find a scenic lake called Lake Mabel. Now, neither one of us were familiar with this location. We had never been there before. And for some reason, we decided not to take a map or a compass. Like, what were you thinking? <laughs> My brain wasn't fully functioning and formed at that point. And to make things worse, as we walked, this trail was overgrown, and it was really hard to follow. So, and then, you know, different trails would kind of cross over each other, and it's like, is that the trail? I have no idea. They weren't marked. As the day went on, we realized that we had lost the trail we were supposed to be on, and we were not going to make it to the lake. At that point, we decided we'd better turn around so that we can make it back home. Well, after this, for hours, we wandered through the forest. Like, okay, where are we? This trail, that trail, this trail, that trail. We had no idea where we were. We were lost. 
in the mountains. Thankfully, though, you know, there are mountains around, and we had this faint memory of what the mountains looked like. When we started, there were those mountains, and these mountains were behind us. So as we remembered the mountains up in the distance that we could see, we kept our eyes on the, the mountain that we thought the truck was in the direction of. And we didn't stop. We didn't give up. We didn't be like, well, I guess this is all there is to life. Let's just camp out right here in the wilderness and die. You know, I love the wilderness. The wilderness is fantastic. But at this moment, I wanted to be home. Home was much more important to me than the wilderness. And as we kept our eyes on the mountain, walking in the direction, we finally found it. The, pulling our eyes off the trails, wherever they're going, off the dirt and to the mountain, it gave us hope and it gave us direction. We had a higher perspective and we made it home, thank the Lord. You know, in chapters 2 and 3, as we just finished these seven churches, the vantage point was from earth. We're looking at the earth. What's happening? Caesar's on the throne. Church is being persecuted. Looks like all hell is breaking loose against God's people. False prophets. Satan is on his throne. There's, there's loveless and lukewarm Christians all around us. But in chapter 4, however, Jesus draws our eyes up to heaven. And we need this heavenly perspective to give us endurance, to give us hope, to give us direction for this hard and long life as we wander through the wilderness. And thankfully, in the overall plan, the bruised and the battered churches of chapter 2 and 3, chapters 2 and 3, are not the end of the story. It doesn't be like chapters 2, 3, suffering, Satan's on the throne, the end. Oh, wow. That's really discouraging. No, there's more. It's not the end of the story. Our current suffering on earth is not all there is. There's more to this life than the broken earth the, and more than the battle of our flesh and of the devil. So take heart. God is going to bring this chapter of the current world system to an end. He's going to flip the page. And God's glorious renewal for the universe must soon come to pass. So if you're struggling, if you're overwhelmed, if you're discouraged with everyday life, I think it helps to ponder heaven. Put your mind in heaven. If Jesus is your king, then heaven is your home. Colossians 3 says that our life is hidden in Christ, and Christ is at the right hand of God in heaven. We know that time flies, we often say it, before you know it, before I know it, we will be there in the presence of God. As we transition here, let's continue to read and discover what John saw in heaven. So we're looking at verse 2. And as he is welcomed to heaven, the first thing that John sees, he sees that God is ruling upon the throne. God is is on the throne and in charge. Look at verse 2. At once I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne stood in heaven, and one seated on the throne. And he who sat there had the appearance of a jasper and carnelian, and around the throne was a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald. 
On this trip to heaven, John sees a throne, this giant throne where a king would sit. In chapter 4, the, world, uh, the word throne, as we see just in chapter 4, this word throne occurs 13 times. That keys us in. Oh, that's important. And from here to the end of Revelation, the word throne is 38 times. It's God's throne. A throne is a picture of the sovereign majesty of a king, and it also signifies rule and judgment. John not only sees a throne, it's not like this empty chair, but there is a person sitting on the throne. It's not Caesar. It's not the President of the United States. It's someone much much greater, someone much higher, the ultimate authority. The person on this throne is the true king and master of the universe. Notice in verse 3, and it's interesting, John here does not say who it is just yet, leaves us in suspense. He describes what he sees. He explains that this ruler is covered in brilliant light. That as it radiates, it radiates colors of gemstones. And as you see these gemstones in the text there in verse 3, these stones, (coughs) each one of them are beautiful and valuable. The jasper stone may have been either a greenish color or red or even like a diamond, crystal clear diamond. You know how diamonds just make the light bounce everywhere. And throughout the Bible, the jasper stone is is associated with the glory of God, the the brilliance of God. The carnelian stone was a bright, fiery red stone. So he's painting a picture of color of lights. So who is on the throne? Who is this person? If you glance down to verses 8 through 10, get a sneak peek, jump ahead just a touch, we learn who it is. His name is the Lord God Almighty, Lord, the Master, the Lord, the King, God Almighty, omnipotent, all-powerful. That is His name, and He lives forever and ever. He's the eternal God who always has been and always will be. This, brothers and and sisters, this is our God on the throne. This is Him who we worship. And as we're thinking about Him on the throne, John continues to tell us about our God. He, he looks what looks like an emerald rainbow or possibly halo around the throne. And if this is a rainbow, when we think about this, what comes to mind when you hear rainbow in the Bible? It's God's mercy through Noah's covenant. It reminds us of of God's promise to Noah, which symbolized both the judgment after the flood, but the mercy in the midst of judgment. And as we think about why does that matter in the book of Revelation, in the story, there is a lot of judgment that's about to come upon the earth. There's a lot of judgment. It's helpful to, to be reminded that It's not just judgment. 
that our God has this rainbow of mercy from his throne. He is merciful even in judgment. He is merciful to his people. And as we're getting a picture of this in our head, trying to ponder it, I I found uh, Apostle Paul's description of God in 1 Timothy 6, 15 through 16 helpful. uh, Paul describes it more in a theological language. John is describing it in a picture, but Paul says it like this. This is what God looks like. He says, God, the blessed and only sovereign, only ruler, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, who alone, no one else, has immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light, whom no one has ever seen or even can see. That's how Paul describes what John is looking at. And so John is looking at that, that God. John, as he sees the throne, the person on the throne, he did the best he could to describe the indescribable with the emeralds, with the, emer- with the, with the jasper, with the carnelian, with the rainbow, with the colors, with the light. He's describing the glory of the indescribable. You can't even look at him, God. And as we continue reading here, he's not done. We see here in verse 4 that God is not alone. He's not all by himself out in the universe. The galaxy is far, far away. No, there's this royal heavenly council around him. God's throne, if you get the picture, is in the middle, and this council is surrounding him. And it says here, verse 4, that this council is 24 elders seated on thrones. It's interesting. God is allowing there to be other thrones in his presence, other creatures ruling in some aspect. John does not tell us who these 24 elders are or exactly what kind of creatures they are. Uh, He only describes them. Like a royal council, they are sitting on thrones around the ultimate king of the universe. But as we try to figure out who they are or what they're like, the title elders show us that they are, we we could say they're leaders. Maybe like the leaders in the Old Testament, the elders, the officials who were leaders among the people of Israel. Or in the New Testament, elders are often the leaders of the church. If they're like the other elders in the Bible, these creatures have responsibility to lead and to govern or to to work on God's behalf over, over His kingdom. Lastly, we also notice here that they are clothed in white garments. This represents their purity, their holiness, and the ability to be in the presence of God. And not only do they have these white robes on, but they also have crowns. And the crown here is is like a victor's crown. Uh, This crown would have maybe been either a golden crown or a golden wreath. And it it shows or represents their glory, uh, that God gave them honor, that He gave them a sense of glory. And it could also represent that they have had a victory over a past struggle, Something that they've experienced in the past, they have conquered it, they have overcome it, they have been victorious in the struggle and have earned the victor's crown. 
You know, as I was pondering who are these 24 elders, <laughs> the best Bible commentators don't agree on who they are. They have a lot of ideas. John MacArthur argues they are the raptured church. Others, however, believe they represent the 12 tribes of Israel and the 12 apostles. Some think they are the angels. Uh, they are angels representing all the redeemed people from the Old and New Testaments. I wouldn't argue and divide over who they are because John didn't tell us. All we know is they symbolize the council of heavenly beings who surround God and rule in some way. And as we move on from the 24 elders, we have this picture, we move into verses 5 and 6, and John continues to paint this mental picture for us of God's throne. It's just detail after detail showing us the glory of God and His throne. And He shows us these awe-inspiring sights and sounds, something that not even Steven Spielberg could think of coming from the throne. Notice, from the throne... There's flashes of lightning. Get the picture. Flashes of lightning. Rumbles of thunder, like a storm. And a picture of the seven spirits of the Holy Spirit, these torches around the throne, ready to go and to judge the world, to purify the world with fire. And under this throne is what looks like a sea of glass or crystal or ice. And in the biblical times, the sea would have been where evil was. Evil would be tossing and turning of the sea, and they believe that if you go, you know, that's where the devil lives. That's evil, uncontrollable. But here in heaven, God's throne is above the sea, all evil. God's throne has calmed the sea, all evil. It's glass under His throne. It's perfectly stilled. He is above it. He can, he can calm every bit of evil in this world. And as we're thinking about the lightning and the sounds of thunder rumbling, and you skip on in Revelation, the, these sounds, lightning and sounds of thunder, are repeated at the conclusion of each of the series of coming judgment. So we'll keep reading and we'll see the lightnings and the peals of thunders and the rumbling after every time God pours out judgment upon the earth. Revelation 8.5, Revelation 11.19, Revelation 16.18. So where does this come from? Where did the judgment come from? The throne is the source. From the throne comes lightning, comes thunder, comes rumbling, comes the Spirit of God and fire. From heaven, from God's throne, a powerful storm is brewing and coming upon the earth. And trying to picture this, you know, uh, one of the shows that we like, me and Steph like to watch was The West Wing. And in the, in the shows, when bad things happen, you had the situation room in the White House. The president would go in there and, and all the high officials and they'd make these big decisions. It's like the, the throne room is kind of like the situation room. God is in the middle. His counsel is around him. And this is the place from which all of the universe is ruled. You know, thinking about this, getting a picture of lightning and thunder and rumblings, 
A few days ago, we had a thunderstorm. I'm not sure if you guys were sleeping during it or not, uh, but at first, about 11 o'clock, it started rumbling. I heard rumbling. We're watching a show, and it's like, is that thunder? Weird. In the distance, it was kind of enjoyable. It's like, oh, that's kind of cool. Thunder, lightning. But about 1 o'clock in the morning, the storm got too close, and all of a sudden, this bolt of lightning struck somewhere, it sounded like in our yard, or maybe in our block, like boom, out of nowhere. Did you guys hear that? So, you know, I was like, whoa, in my bed, and Baxter, our dog, started barking, and I'm like, whoa. So I got out of the bed, I walked downstairs, it's going to be okay, buddy, don't worry, stop barking. It's just lightning, thunder. I checked on everything, made sure it's okay, and I got, I got back in my bed, and I could not go back to sleep. My heart was racing. That's one bolt of lightning. I thought my house was going to explode. <laughs> it was amazing. I was like shaking. Woo. But after that, I mean, just, and that was this week, I'm like, maybe the Lord sent that just for me to get a picture of the throne room of God. This is lightning, this power. People that are electricians out there, I'm not sure how many volts or watts are in the throne, but imagine that. Job says God sends the lightning where he wants it to go, and it hits the mark out of his hand. It's, lightning is scary and powerful, but it obeys God's voice. God says, go there. It goes. God is the one who commands the lightning where it should go, and thankfully, all who are in Christ, this God is our Heavenly Father. It's our Heavenly Father. When we have a storm, we can run into our Heavenly Father's arms and comfort us. It's okay. I'm in charge. You can go back to sleep. You can rest. Uh, when you guys have storms in your life, I want, to, I want you to remember this throne. God is on the throne. Storms start to happen. You're stressed out, anxious, maybe can't sleep at night. Remember, who is on the throne? God is on the throne. He is on the throne. He is in control of everything that comes into my life. And I have promises in His Word, Romans 8, everything that comes into my life, my great God is in perfect control using every single thing for my good. I can rest even when it hurts. He's doing something. He's doing something good right now. As we move on to this last element, John sees in chapter 4, it's an amazing picture of worship. And in this part of the vision, we see that God is worthy. He is worthy of all worship. He's worthy. God is worthy of all worship. John describes this worship that's happening in heaven. He says it like this, and around the throne, on each side of the throne, are four living creatures. So we have some new characters, not just the 24 elders, but these now four living creatures full of eyes in front and behind. The first living creature like a lion. The second living creature like an ox. The third living creature with the face of a man. The fourth living creature like an eagle in flight. And the four living creatures, each of them with six wings, are full of eyes, eyes all around and within. And day and night, 
they never cease to say, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. As we, as we read this, if you're familiar with the Bible, you probably are reminded that this sounds a lot like what Ezekiel talked about in Ezekiel 1 and Ezekiel chapter 10 and what Isaiah saw in Isaiah chapter 6. Ezekiel calls them the cherubim. Isaiah says they're the seraphim. In Revelation, we don't get the name of them, but what we see is that they are probably the highest order of heavenly beings or angelic being, because they are nearest to the throne. You know, just look at, look at the text. They are right there at the throne of God. And with, these, with their animal-like descriptions, or, and even man-like descriptions, it's likely that these four figures are designed to represent all of the animal and human life creation, kind of representing us, representing what the whole created order is meant to do. And notice what these amazing, mysterious beings continually do. They worship the all-powerful God who is on the throne. That's what they do. They worship Him. Every night, every day, they never stop saying that God is the most holy. He is the superlative of holiness. The eternal God is pure. The eternal God is set apart, and He is different from all of His creation. There is nothing, no one, none like Him in all of creation. He is holy. He is different than anything else in the whole universe. There's none like Him, is what they say. And in verses 9 and 11, every time these amazing beings declare God's greatness, notice giving glory to Him, giving honor to Him, and giving thanks to Him which means that they're recognizing and they're celebrating God as the king and the master of the universe. Every time they declare His greatness, the 24 elders in this council, it's like they get off the throne and they wholeheartedly worship God. They fall on their faces in humility before God and they cast, they take their crowns off and they cast them before God's feet at the throne showing that everything they have, all of their gifts, their knowledge, their power, their strengths, the victories, everything they've accomplished, it came from God. God gave it to them. Their breath came from God. Their life came from God. God, here it is. It belongs to you. You gave it to me as a gift. I am going to give that right back to you. You are worthy of it all. It's amazing. They declare God is worthy of all worship because He created everything, because of His will, God's will, and His desire, this universe came into being. Everything that exists was His idea. Galaxies, the sun, the moon, the mountains, animals, angels, He thought of it. He gave it life. He sustains its life. What these four marvelous creatures in this royal council is doing represents what all of creation was made to do. This is what we are supposed to do. This is what we were made for. We were made for. This made me think as I was pondering this scene in heaven, when was the last time I got on my face before God or even my knees before God? 
where I physically bowed my whole body before him. When was the last time I prayed like this and gave like this and declared that, God, everything I have is an undeserved gift from you? God, take it and use it. I don't want to hold anything back. On the contrary, sometimes I feel a little afraid of people seeing me close my eyes and pray in public. How about you? You ever feel too shy or ashamed to pray when people are watching? Or maybe do you feel a little self-conscious talking to your friends or coworkers about God? Or maybe when you sing in church, you're kind of a little uneasy. Are you willing, and am I willing, to worship with our whole heart like these creatures do in heaven? The Westminster Shorter Catechism summarizes our, our purpose in life like this. It, it asks us, what is the chief end of man? What's our whole purpose of life? It answers, man's chief end is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. My friends, our main purpose, like what is your purpose in life? This is it, to joyfully declare the greatness of God with everything that you are. He is worthy of more than we can ever give Him or ever say about Him. As we wrap up the message here, um, going back to the the best-selling books and movies about heaven, I haven't seen them, I haven't read them, and I'm not planning on it, Um, but I think it's safe to say that this 11-verse vision is worth way more of your time and thoughts than any movie or any book on any bestseller list. I think if we continually camp out in this, ponder, chew on, meditate, this, this can change our hearts and our minds and help us as we go on looking forward to heaven. Those stories about people on earth, they might prompt your heart or make touch your heart, it may prompt some tears, it may pique your curiosity, they can't be trusted. But this, this can be trusted. As we go from here, I want you to see and feel the awe-inspiring greatness of God. I hope you're feeling that. But I also want you to go away from here marveling at God's kindness and mercy. We just saw a very big picture of the transcendent God in heaven. How in the world could we sinful people ever stand in the presence of that God? Think about that. I can't even stand one bolt of lightning. How can we stand in the presence of that God? Frequently we are ungrateful, cowardly, prideful, arrogant, disobedient, selfish, and even greedy. Daily, you and I sin against God in our thoughts, words, and deeds. We are not even remotely qualified to stand in God's presence. Instead, our constant sinful deeds deserve God's righteous judgment. The mystery of the gospel, though, is that this holy God loves us 
He loves us and He offers us grace and peace and forgiveness. In Christ, this God came down from heaven to earth. He took upon flesh to live among His sinful creatures and even be killed by the people He made. And Paul tells us what Christ was doing when He came. He said Christ did this to be the mediator between God and men by giving Himself as a ransom for us all. Now, if you just quickly turn one page back to Revelation 1, and look at what it says in Revelation 1.4. I just saw this this weekend. It's like, oh. It says, the God on the throne with the seven fiery spirits offers you grace, undeserved kindness, and peace with himself. And in verse 5, if you keep reading down, Jesus Christ, who is the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, the ruler of the kings of earth, he loves us and he has freed us from our sins by his blood. Get this, he has made us a kingdom of priests to his God and Father. Do you see that? By his blood, Jesus has made a way for us to be freed from sin and to stand before God as a priest. God has made a way for you to be forgiven and fit for heaven I want to encourage you, if Jesus is not your mediator between you and God, I welcome you to find grace today, peace and forgiveness and trust in Christ. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we give you praise and thanks. You are worthy of it all. We pray that your word would do its work in our hearts and minds now. Help us to grow in our vision of you, pray that you would become bigger in our mind, that the fears of people or life or anxieties would grow smaller. We pray that we would live in such a way as to worship you. We pray this in Christ's name, amen.